The question now occurs on Article 3 as amended. All those in favor, please signify by saying aye. Aye. All those opposed? Call of the roll is demanded, and the roll call is ordered, and uh, all those in favor of Article 3 as amended, please signify by saying aye when their name is called. Those opposed, no, and the clerk will call the roll. Mr. Donahue. Aye. Mr. Brooks. Aye. Mr. Kastenmeyer. Aye. Mr. Edwards. Aye. Mr. Hutchinson. No. Mr. McClory. Aye. Mr. Smith. No. Mr. Sandman. No. Mr. Railsback. No. Mr. Wiggins. No. Mr. Moorhead. No. Mr. Marazzini. No. Mr. Lada. No. Mr. Rodino. Aye. The third article has been approved by a narrow margin. Well, little column A, little column B. First of all, I just want to tell you what a great show you got. I listen to you all the time. Thank you, thank you. What do you want to talk about? Hey, did I tell you guys I got a goat? Yeah, baby! <laughs> yeah. Well, good morning, good evening, or good afternoon, wherever you are, whatever you do. A lot of things happening in the world today. Most of them are far beyond our control, you might say. So perhaps it's time we took a pause and thought about life and thought about the laws of gravity, Congress, high crimes, misdemeanors, impeachment, politics, and or the news. Don't touch that dial. Just try to hear me out for a little while. Well, the Constitution seems clear about what constitutes the basis for impeachment. Of course, what seems to be so and what actually is so are two very different things, aren't they? At the end of the day, impeachment is political, not criminal. And while the framers may not have necessarily thought in those terms, their own words make it clear that the idea of being able to willy-nilly impeach people was probably not what they actually intended. What else is new? I'm right. Here's how you get a hold of me. The text machine is area code 209-565-DAVE. That's 209-565-3283. Email dave at thedavebowmanshow.com. And of course, we're on the web. Probably even the dark web. Just use your preferred non-denominational web search browser to take you to... DaveBowmanShow.com, PlausiblyLive.com, same website, different names. Uh, look for us on Facebook, Twitter, and iTunes. Ego bibere capulis at olive vivere if I drink coffee so that others might live. Ah, it's good today. Still kind of getting my voice back. It's getting better. You know how it goes. There are times when <laughs> things just don't want to move as quickly as you'd, you'd hope they will. So, kind of an important day for me. 35 years ago today, aboard USS Michigan, I was awarded my submarine qualification pen. The, the dolphins, as we refer to them. And pretty proud of that moment. Still proud of that moment. <laughs> That's my good friend, Mitch Yakaza, uh, pinning those on me. Quite, uh, it's hard to believe it's 35 years. I was only, what, 21? Well, I guess I just turned 22, so that was quite a while ago, wasn't it? When we look at the night sky, we see various patterns of stars. And throughout the history of mankind, it has been our tradition and our practice to assign 
picture codes, I guess, to those particular stellar displays. I've often referred to Orion as my oldest friend, the constellation Orion. There's some reasons for that that are kind of personal. I'm not going to get into them today, but I love the constellation of Orion. The The intriguing thing about it is, though, that as you look at various constellations and what they are to us, other folks have throughout history have looked at those same stars and come up with completely different things. Ursa Minor, the or Ursa Major, sorry, the Big Bear, uh, we tend to call the Big Dipper. Others call it uh, a plow. The ancient Egyptians saw a parade in the in the shape of the Big Dipper and the and the Big Bear. Um, it, it's remarkable to me that again, two people can look at exactly the same thing and see things entirely and utterly differently, can't they? Whether you see Orion the Hunter or something else. It really is based solely upon your perceptions of things, isn't it? When we look at Scripture, we get the same kind of thing. Two people can look at exactly the same verbs, the same verbiage. Sorry, not verbs, although there may be verbs in it. They can look at exactly the same words on the same exact page and come to two radically different conclusions about what that means. In fact, in Judaism, we have... uh, (laughs) literally uh, volumes upon volumes of books that uh, the entire purpose of which is is filled with arguments about what things mean we start with a with a ver we start with a verse from the torah and the debate rages around that verse whether or not it means this or that or well you have heard it said that that so and so said this but i say unto you this and and so forth and so on for those of you who don't get that reference that is a reference to some of the speeches recorded in the gospels about uh, jesus speaking in a very rabbinical style a very that shows that he was very well educated in talmud and torah type arguments um, those are the same kind of arguments you read in the Talmud. It's amazing to see that people can read exactly the same words and come to two completely opposite, polar opposite conclusions. And you don't have to look far in theology to find those folks who uh, who see things that way, do you? It's, it's an everyday occurrence when you get right down to it. In science, I've been doing a lot of reading in in not necessarily science of late, but in history, uh, particularly in the uh, what we would call the late Dark Ages, early Renaissance era. Uh, those are those are bad titles. They're they're not really representative of what was going on. But uh, roughly the 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 time frame of of Galileo and Kepler and those uh, those folks as they were trying to convince people of the validity of their observations that that uh, that the earth moved around the sun not the other way around and the truth of the science was so overwhelming that they were having a hard time understanding why other people didn't see it that way there's a wonderful set of letters actual written letters from Johannes Kepler to Galileo urging him, begging him to really publish his his research indicating a heliocentric solar system, that the sun was the center, not the earth. 
And, and Galileo was very reticent to do so. Why? Because, as you know, um, the church was seeing things much differently, and the church was, well, <laughs> the, the uh, Inquisition was going on, and the Inquisition had already investigated Galileo once. He managed to survive that, but now the second time, despite the validity of his scientific observations, despite the fact that he could show you the evidence that the Earth moved around the sun, other people would look at exactly that same evidence and conclude that he was completely wrong. Why? Well, because people like Martin Luther, yes, that Martin Luther, uh, declared that people like Kepler and Galileo, who insisted on a heliocentric universe or, or solar system, were, were wrong. Why? Because the scripture says that Joshua commanded the sun to stand still, not the earth. QED, they're wrong, and we're right. And that wasn't even the Inquisition. That was the Protestant side of things. On the, on the Catholic side of things, of course, you had the church uh, locking Galileo away for life. Why? Because he wrote a book, a book called The Dialogues, of the, uh, the Dialogues Concerning the Two Chief World Systems. And in his book, he wrote it as a conversation with two people. One person was a learned scientist who understood that the Earth moved around the sun, and the other person he named Simplicito. Jethro kind of kind of approach to things. And his Simplicito character argued, saying the exact same things that the Pope and the church were saying. And and the Pope couldn't forgive that, and so they arrested Galileo and locked him away for life because he dared to uh to challenge the church like that. Again. You're looking at the same evidence that Giordano Bruno was looking at 33 years earlier, that uh, Kepler was seeing, that Brahe was seeing, that Galileo was seeing, but they were coming to two radically different conclusions. But you begin to see a little bit of difference here in the sense that this wasn't necessarily not understanding the evidence. This was completely ignoring it. This was basically saying, la, 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 we don't care. You're wrong. And you begin to see the maintaining of power here was more practical and more important than, in fact, the recognition of scientific truths, which wouldn't have changed any of the eternal truths at all. But at the time, it was a power struggle. Galileo locked away for life. Others burned at the stake. Others tortured. Uh, all over two people looking at exactly the same thing and coming to different conclusions. It's continued into our era. One of my favorite books, one of, quite frankly, one of my favorite movies, although it has not aged well. It needs to be, I would love to see a really good remake of Fahrenheit 451, but the book Fahrenheit 451, and we've talked about it on the show before, uh, Ray Bradbury's book has been misinterpreted for years, ever since he wrote it. It's been misinterpreted as to what it means. Is it really about, you know, totalitarianism and and censorship or is it about as he finally told us about becoming a minds numbed robot because we can't you know pull ourselves away from the entertainment world which makes me wonder again if you read the blog yesterday i was talking about uh ipads and well i had an article about ipads and iphones and the fact that the people who invented these things don't use them and what does that tell us well Fahrenheit 451, but you got people that read this book 
and come to completely opposite conclusions about what it means and what it what it's saying to us. Well, who's right? Who wins in that argument? Does 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 Ray Bradbury, the guy who wrote it, win, or does your high school literature teacher win because you know she's the one or he's the one that writes the test that you're going to be taking? And so you got to get the right answer. From their viewpoint, you see what I'm driving at here? It becomes a power struggle. It really does. It becomes about power more than it becomes about what's actually going on here. And what's actually driving all of this is power. Power perceived is power achieved. The idea that somehow or another, we, you know... We control things. We contrive to control things. And this is really the ultimate expression. It finds its ultimate expression in the concept of impeachment. Now, impeachment is something that we we think we understand. We understand what the Constitution says about it. And if you asked 100 Americans standing on the street, they would tell you high crimes and misdemeanors. And that would be the end of it. High crimes and misdemeanors. Then ask them what that means. What is a high crime and a misdemeanor? Mm, It's whatever I want it to be, isn't it? Because two people can look at exactly the same thing and see something completely different. Two people can look at a phone call and see radically different conclusions. Two people can look at a transcript of that phone call and come to radically different polar opposite conclusions without even batting an eye without even acknowledging the idea that there might be another interpretation of the data, might there not be? And what drives that perception, what drives that vision is less about reality, less about, well, is this really a high crime or misdemeanor, or is it power? If we continue down this road, sorry, something's driving me nuts there. If we continue down this road, Will Trump continue to have power, or will the Democrats have power, or will somebody else have power? And ultimately, because it's a political game, what then becomes the end game of all this? If we start impeaching people willy-nilly, well, where does that end? And that was part of the fear that the framers had. The framers, when they sat down to write out this whole thing, we've talked about this at great length before, we've talked about the fact that this president idea was something radically new, radically different, radically unheard of before. And there was great fear about it. And and part of the reason was, again, everybody knew who was going to be the first president. There was never any doubt about who the first president of the United States would be under the Constitution. It was going to be George Washington. And in essence, George Washington could could have been president for as long as he wanted to be. And nobody would have objected. But they all knew that there was going to be a second president. And looking around that room, and we've looked around that room, and we've looked at the character of the men involved, we've we've talked about their disagreements, we've talked about the fact that there is no homogenous framer opinion of things. I I I it drives me nuts when people say, we gotta get back to the values of the framers. Well, which framer are you referring to? Because there were fifty five men in there, many of whom just left because they didn't like what was going on. And of the 39 men who were left when it was finished, virtually all of them disagreed with somebody about something in that whole thing. Which which framers' values are? is it that you want to get back to? Well, Madison wanted to do away with state governments and, and just have one big national government. Others wanted to have three national governments by, by region and, 
so forth and so on. So when we talk about those kinds of things, it shows a, a lack of knowledge on our part. We don't really understand that there is no homogenous, singular frame or opinion about things. And the Constitution is a, a shining example of compromises and well-written ideas that allow for things to change and grow. They could have written the president, vice president, officers under trust of the United States, judges, shall be impeached upon the following. And they could have listed the events. Treason, bribery, uh, murder, mm, adultery, what else? Uh, you know, theft, tax evasion. They could have listed all of those things, but they didn't. They made it very specific. Treason, but again, they had also defined treason very firmly in the Constitution. And despite the fact that many of us like to throw up our hands and go, well, that's treason. Mm. It you know, if you read that definition, it isn't as hard to prove. It isn't as easy to prove treason as you think it is, because it doesn't meet the classical definition in our heads of what we think it is. Bribery, okay. Well, why would they? Why would they specifically point out bribery? Because bribing a public official of any nature, but but particularly a president, could uh, could be problematic, couldn't it? It's it's clear cut, but what is a bribe isn't as clear cut, is it? We've had people impeached. We've had judges in, uh, impeached for collect for uh, quote unquote accepting bribes, and yet they were not criminally charged because there wasn't sufficient evidence to prove that they were actually accepting bribes. It could have just been my friend taking me to lunch, and in fact, that was the argument that was made. There were, but then you get into this high crimes and misdemeanors. Well, what is that? What does that mean? What's, what's the driving force here? The framers were actually not so sure themselves. They'd never really been through such an argument as this before. This, oh, this whole idea of a presidency was something that really... It was so new and so radically different. The idea of investing, uh, the, the idea of vesting executive power with a single person was both frightening and relieving. They understood that Congress was going to be necessarily slow. They understood that Congress was going to be riven with political strife. They understood those things, and they weren't necessarily against that. They, they, keep in mind, in 1787, there were regional and sectional differences in the country. There were moral differences. And even though we tend to assign the difference between slave and non-slave, the reality is that even in the 1780s, even the late 1780s, 1790s, and right down to today, the biggest divide in this country politically is urban versus rural. It always has been and it always will be. The rural, rural areas of the country then and now have different ideas about what needs to happen than the urban places do. That has always been the biggest divide. Yeah, slavery was a big divide, don't get me wrong. And it caused a lot of arguments. But even in 1780, they understood that there were regional differences and there was always going to be a political divide. And because of the way they set up Congress, they set it up so that those regional interests would be represented and would naturally conflict. And now you, so you need this executive guy to kind of run things that need to be run on a daily basis that you can't really rely on Congress as they had under the Articles of Confederation. Remember, the Articles of Confederation were a mess. Congress had to approve everything unanimously. Uh, 
it didn't work. It didn't function. And we're going to try something else. We're going to try a CEO in effect. And we're going to make sure that this person has guidelines, but that he can also be removed if need be. Sure, treason makes sense. I mean, if we elected a president who was really a Russian sleeper agent, we could prove that. Well, that's treason. If we caught him actually taking bribes, taking money to do certain things to benefit certain people, sure, that would be something. High crimes and misdemeanors, though, are by definition, and this is the part that we seem to forget, by definition, they are political acts defined by the opposition. So what is a high crime and misdemeanor to me might not be to you or might not be to that guy over there or that girl over there. What, what, what I find is a high crime and misdemeanor might not even tick the needle on, your, on yours. And this was necessarily so, as Alexander Hamilton wrote. What it is, he was defining high crimes and misdemeanors, was the misconduct of public men or, in other words, from the abuse or violation of some public trust. And then he went on to add, these acts are political as they relate chiefly to the injuries done immediately to the society itself. They are not, they are by definition, not criminal acts. The reality of the world is that through our time, through our national history, through our, you know, we've, we've, we've actually impeached 19 people. 19 people have stood uh, impeachment or had impeachments passed by the House of Representatives against them. And of those 19, only one was ever criminally charged post-impeachment. And he served 17 months in jail for tax evasion. And then because this is the, this is the, the nature of this whole political idea of impeachment, because he had been impeached, he was allowed to go back to serve as a lawyer again in his home state because, frankly, he... Uh, he argued that, that it was a political uh, witch hunt, and sure, I pled guilty, but that doesn't make me guilty. And so he went back to, to Nevada and started practicing law. We've had one guy that was actually impeached. He ended up resigning, as I recall. That may not be the case, but uh, let me look it up real quick here because I've got it right in front of me. Um, I believe he was actually impeached. I got it. Uh, yeah, he was removed on August 20th, 1989. Uh, Alcee Hastings was impeached, removed from office as a judge, and then returned to his home state where he ran for office and was reelected or was elected back to the Congress of the United States where he became the senior representative from, guess the state, dun, 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 Florida. So, you know, impeachment is not it's not necessarily defined as a criminal act. And that's part of the problem that we have, depending on how you look at this. There are people who, you know, on the left who look at this as well, these are criminal acts. And so they, they write cartoons like, Hey, you're Richard Reed, the shoe bomber. How'd you get out? Well, according to Republicans, unsuccessful attempts at crimes aren't illegal anymore. Ha 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 ha. Meanwhile, the, the right does its cartoons, impeach Trump, impeach Trump, impeach Trump with the chicken with its head cut off running around screaming about criminal activities and the, and the likes of that. But at the end of the day, no matter how you slice this, no matter how you look at it, no matter what you believe about something, impeachment is a political act. It always has been. It always will be. Unless you've got absolute hardline evidence 
of an actual act of treason, which is outlined in the Constitution as to how you can prove that, or an actual act of bribery, which again, you know, look, I'm not trying to be pedantic here. I'm not trying to be uh, unforgiving, but what I'm saying is, what exactly is a bribe? Now, I know the definition of it, but is that necessarily what gets people? I mean, like I said, we had a judge who was impeached for bribery, and he was allowed to go back to practicing law because, as he argued, it wasn't really a bribe. It was just a lunch from my brother-in-law, friend, whatever. There's perception is reality and perception is how can be power. And that's what this really comes down to. Back in the 1970s, when uh, they were debating the impeachment of Richard Nixon, there was it was interminable, folks. I mean, I was alive back then and it went on and on and on. And you think the ones today is bad. It was it was pretty bad then. And this is rapidly approaching this. But this is one of my favorite cartoons from that era, Doonesbury. Uh, no impeachable offense, no impeachable offense. How can St. Clair, who was the attorney general, keep babbling on like this two Congress people talking and obstruction of justice, hush money payments, secret bombings, 25 top aides convicted or in, indicted. What does it take? What does it take? And then they both kind of putting their hands in their chins and going. Mm, sorry. And then the guy says, if only he'd knock over a bank or something. Yeah, then we'd have him. Then we'd get him. And that really, it, it encapsulates this whole idea of, of what impeachment really is. It's a political act, not a criminal act. It is not a criminal trial in the strictest of senses. It is, in fact, a political act. It's about power. And that's all it is. It's all it ever has been. Even if Donald Trump is impeached, and even if by some chance, and let's face it, there are only two chances, uh, slim and none and slim left town, of, of a conviction in the Senate, the likelihood of him being criminally charged is almost, it's virtually zero because this is not a criminal activity. And the framers intended it that way because they understood that the American people and theoretically the Congress of the United States would look at the intolerability of obvious politics as distasteful. Now, of course, they never anticipated modern media and modern, what's the word for it, focus group testing or anything like that, although they understood those concepts. And so as we watch what's going on, we need to keep in mind that two people can look at the exact same thing and at least say they come to completely different conclusions. At least say, like the church, no, 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 that's not true. And understand that at the end of the day, it's all about politics, because politics is power. That's what it is. And both sides want to maintain power over your life. Just keep that in mind as you're watching all this go on and on and on and on. And it will go on and on. Got to get going. Take the time right now. Tell the people that matter in your life you love them very much. You'd miss them if they weren't there. So don't pass up those opportunities you don't want to have. That regret. Plausibly live, I'm Dave Bowman. This is my show, The Dave Bowman Show, right here on the podcast, 99 Internet Radio Network. Hope to see you tomorrow, everybody. Have a great day. The Dave Bowman Show is a Slippery Fish Entertainment production for the Podcast 99 Internet Radio Network. 
For more information or to complain about how the show offended you, the text or voicemail number is 209-565-DAVE. For more information about the show, log on to the Dave Bowman Show.com. Hey, I'm going to go do something productive. I'm going to go watch television.